Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're in verses 43 through 48 as we continue through our Sermon on the Mount studies. Let me read this section uh, and then we'll go back and comment on it. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's referring to what the people heard uh, when the teachers of the law of God spoke about the Scriptures. It's what they said that he's referring to. And we want to constantly remind ourselves in this study on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was correcting the traditional interpretations of God's law. The teachers of the law were studying it and coming to incorrect and wrong conclusions about what God meant. And Jesus was returning the people to the original intention of the law. And if anybody knew what it meant, it was Jesus. And so he uh, was getting their mind back on that. The essential problem was that the religious teachers saw God's law as only law. They did not comprehend it as a law of love flowing forth from a heart that desired to fellowship with sinful man. They thought of it as something external, not internal, something that could be kept to the letter while violating its spirit. It had become a means of self-righteousness for them rather than the mirror of God's grace and mercy. Uh, and so they didn't really see God in the law wanting to have a relationship with them. Uh, maybe because, you know, we have a bent towards self-righteousness. Uh, you know, we're, we're sinful. And um, ever since the garden, uh, when Adam and Eve blew it, we have a, a sense, a natural sense, that we want to climb back into the good graces of God on our own. Uh, you see it immediately with Cain and Abel. Abel seemed to get the program and offer uh, blood sacrifice. Cain didn't catch on and he figured he could just bring the, the amazing produce of his farmer's market uh, and you know offer it to, to the Lord and he didn't, didn't understand the cost of it. Jesus' current statement is a real good example of this because uh, first he quotes from Leviticus 19.18 and here's how that actually reads in its context. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. <clears throat> now, the teachers interpreted this to mean you loved your neighbor and therefore you could hate your enemy. And uh, I, I kind of like that, actually. I mean, I, I can see the... Uh, I can see the logic in it. And, and more than the logic, sadly, I can see the behavior that a lot of people have. I mean, this is unfortunately how a lot of us act, even as Christians. We love our neighbors, but we have a tendency to hate our enemies. Uh, and so the teachers looked at this in Leviticus and other scriptures, and, and they said, well, what God intended was that we should 
you know, be a little bless me club, you know, as Jews, we're, we're the chosen people and we just hate everybody else. Uh, and when we do that, we're keeping God's law. If you're a dad, you know that kids can do this. Uh, they act like you weren't totally clear when you set forth the rules and the boundaries. Uh, you know, I, you, know you, you have to be so careful sometimes telling kids, or teachers, same thing, you have to be so careful telling kids exactly what the parameters are, and then when they go outside of that, they have a, a, a logical argument you know that you you understood the intent of it was that they wouldn't do this behavior they just thought that they shouldn't do it between the hours of eight and nine you know because you didn't specify and so uh, this is the problem with law as soon as there's a law you and I start thinking about how we can get around the law is it really breaking the law if we do this or if we do that or you know that kind of a thing and then the real problem with the law we're seeing, I think, a lot in our courts today, and that is we are more interested in the letter of the law than in the spirit of the law. And so things, not, I'd say 50% of the news are things where you and I as Christians scratch our head and say, well, the answer to that is obvious. Of course you shouldn't do that, or that shouldn't even go to trial. And yet you've got all these court cases that are pending because of the letter of the law. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, the latest one I was aware of was this um, Muslim student who couldn't go to his graduation because it was being held in a church, even though they were just using the church as a building. Uh, no one was handing out tracts, no one was proselytizing, but his religion prohibits him from going into other people's religious houses and the school district decided to use this church because they don't have a building big enough and so now our friends over at the ACLU are suing them uh, you know because this poor kid missed his one of the most important events of his life because of the terrible you know great Satan uh, you know laws that we have of tolerance that uh, you know all the and so you know and, and we, we get incensed about that sometimes wrongly politically but I think rightfully from the position of the law I mean you know our laws are are generous and they're gracious to uh, you know immigrants and people of other religions and faiths more so than <laughs> you know any other country in the world you know I mean we don't have the ACLU trying to go to international court to sue people about why we can't carry Bibles in Syria uh, you know and things like that uh, and so we look at that and say hey you know th that's not even really an issue we're sorry this is where we're having our graduation we're not trying to force you to become a Christian uh, we'll do our best even to cover up the crosses, you know, if you want. But, but you're just going to have to flow. This is, this is America. This is the United States. And you and I both know that if we follow that kid later in his life, he's going to go into all kinds of buildings. You know, uh, you know if, I mean, if he gets a job at Notre Dame making $300,000 a year, he's going to take it. And, and, and his morals are going to change, you know. So, so we look at that, and that's the problem. We have the letter of the law, and everybody is, is you know, on that letter. And then what it does, and, and I hope not to step on any political toes, but it forces Christians back into our Constitution. And now we have all this debate about what the fathers intended. And I think there's a place for that. I think that's okay. But all of it is just sucking energy off of what, you know, is no, what everybody should agree on into these weird areas of what, what does the law say and what does it really mean. And, and it opens up the door for, you know, you and I sit here and think, well, how do these judges 
I mean, how do they come up to these conclusions? Because once you get that deep into how important the law is, it sounds funny, but it doesn't even matter anymore what the law says. It's just whatever you think it says. And this is now my interpretation of it. And so this is the kind of thing that was happening in Israel. God said you should love your neighbor as yourself. And they said, oh, okay, so we hate everybody else. I mean, that, I mean how can you come to that conclusion? But they did. Now, this arises obviously from a mistaken sense of the word neighbor, which they understood to mean only their friend. And they concluded that if a friend was to be loved, an enemy was to be hated, not only Gentiles, but anyone among themselves even, which could come under that name. Jesus would later tell the parable of the Good Samaritan to expose the error of this whole perspective. Instead of asking, who is my neighbor, because I love my neighbor and hate my enemy, Jesus said the real question is, whose neighbor are you? And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, he at the end asked, now who, who was neighbor to the man? Who's the one that showed him God's love? And so it's a whole different perspective. And that's what God had in mind in Leviticus 19.18. Not, you know, who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? Uh, and so... All of this illustrates the difference between a law approach and a love approach to the Scriptures. And, and uh, God had to give the law, and it's important and it's useful, but it was always to, me, uh, to be a law of love. We want to maintain a love approach to the Scriptures, not a law approach. When Jesus says, but I say to you, it's a very strong word of authority, more than we understand. Based on His own nature, the Lord was canceling out all previous teachings that fell short of God's ideal. So this is the tradition of your fathers and ancestors, but now I say, with my authority from my Father in heaven, this is what the law really means. The Lord discussed several instances in which uh, previously you would have hated your enemy, but now you were to love them like a neighbor. He says, bless those who curse you. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you ask God to bless them. It means that you use kind words and expressions of love and grace even while you're being cursed. There's a couple of videos you can watch online. They're, they're dash cams of uh, police officers being cussed out while they're giving tickets and, and such. And, and uh, they, it's so funny because they just completely keep their cool uh, and just don't raise their voice. There's one in particular where the guy actually, it builds up and builds up and the guy in the car actually wads up the ticket and throws it on the ground while the officer's standing there and he... He just said, very calmly, he says, he says, Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to get out of your vehicle now and pick up this paper, otherwise I'll have to write you a citation for littering, which carries a fine of $250. And he goes on, and the guy's just incensed. And uh, you and I are thinking, don't let that guy get away with that, but it's hilarious. He, the guy gets out, and he picks up the paper, and he speeds off, you know, and stuff. And he probably got pulled over again, for all I know, you know. I like to think he turned the dash cam off and went and found him. But anyway, that, you know, that's the way I think. But there's a number of those, and they're, they're really they're fun because people are just cussing. I just saw one yesterday I had to tell you about. It. it was so funny. This guy pulls over this guy for speeding and for having loud music, and the guy starts cussing at him and yelling at him. He said, the loud music is only for people who listen to rap music. and you know, It doesn't apply to him. Uh, you know, he can play his radio as loud as he wants because it's only for people playing rap music and stuff. And he said, besides, I was listening to Bill O'Reilly. And uh, it's just it's just funny and stuff. He gets a citation anyway. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's what Jesus has in mind. 
I, 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 I sometimes don't mention this, but I should. Uh, he's not talking to us as a nation. He's talking to us as individuals. This has nothing to do with pacifism, with helping Iran build nuclear power plants or acting like that's not happening. You know, the national uh, you know, government is a lot different than what you do on a personal basis you know, in, in our lives in, within your nation. I mean, there's no advocation here of uh, nations turning the other cheek or letting people like Hitler or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad take over the world. I mean, that's a whole different thing. We're talking about our day-to-day encounters. Another way of saying bless those who curse you would be let them curse. You just go on blessing them as if it didn't matter to you. Do good to those who hate you. Uh, God showed his goodness to you when you hated him while you were yet a sinner. And some of us might argue, I didn't really hate God, I just didn't know him. Well, the word of God says you did know him or could have known him through creation and through your conscience, but you weren't seeking him. And sometimes... uh, you know, remaining neutral, indifference is a form of hatred. If you're indifferent to somebody who loves you and who's done, uh, uh, you know, these wonderful things to you, it, it falls under the category of hatred. But, you know, without mincing words, I think all of us would at least agree that God showed his goodness to us while we were yet sinners, at least. Uh, and, and certainly uh, we're happy that he did that. And it was really the power of that love that the Holy Spirit was able to use to draw us to Christ. The fact that God had continued to do good towards us in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us even though we were uh, indifferent or actively hating God. These exhortations remind us we are to be like Christ on the earth. How will the wicked be saved unless we bless them and do good regardless of their words and actions? He says, And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Uh, Jesus did just this as he hung on the cross. Sure, he was the Son of God, God in human flesh, but we need to remind ourselves that while he was on the earth, Jesus refused to use his deity and he lived strictly as a spirit-filled man. And this is a very, very important thing to tuck away because we do have trouble with the dual nature of God, you know, the, you know, as God and man. Was he acting as God? Was he acting as man? Uh, and I'd go out on a limb and say, when Jesus was on the earth, he was acting as a man. Philippians says he set aside that deity. He didn't get rid of. He didn't quit being God to only be a man. I mean, he was both God and man, but he was he was willfully choosing to not use the powers of his deity and to live like a spirit-filled man. Uh, and so he, he received things like the word of knowledge from his father. You know, and it helps sometimes. You know, it, it blows your mind. It's, you space out and you think, what was it like for God to be a baby in the womb? I mean, did he know things? And, you know, I mean, and, and how did all that really work out? We'll never know. But when we, when we think of being like Christ, it's important that we remember he was our example uh, in terms of living life as a human being in total communion with God. Uh, if he could do it, therefore, so can you. It is what he promised his disciples when he told them that he was leaving for heaven but would send his Holy Spirit to be with them so that the things he did, he, we would do greater things. We fall short, we fall back, we fail. That's part of it too uh, because we still have our flesh to contend with. But it's not a defeatist attitude. We say, oh, I sinned, 
He's faithful and just to forgive me my sin. He'll cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I can go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't have to grieve the Holy Spirit. I do have power over sin. Um, we're losing some of that sense, I think, in the modern uh, world in which we live <coughs> when people are being referred out to different types of counseling and different approaches to uh, what are essentially spiritual problems. Uh, you know, it, it's too easy sometimes to be convinced by other people and even by ourselves that I just can't do this. And we need to be reminded, first of all, personally, that probably I'm unwilling to do it. If, if I'm a Christian, I'm able to. That's the, that's the thing that we've lost. And so when, when I, a lot of times when I say I am unable to defeat this sin or to do this behavior, what I really mean is I'm unwilling to take the steps necessary. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you could defeat this if you'd cut off your hand and if you would pluck out your eye. You say, well, wait a minute, how about I just take some Prozac? You know, or, or how about I go to this recovery group and talk with a bunch of people who have the same problem and talk about how difficult it is, or, or whatever. And, and um, you're treading on thin ice when you talk about these things, but you know, you, it's, we haven't gotten smarter about what's wrong with people. We've just decided what's wrong with people isn't spiritual, it's chemical, and we convince them that they can take substances to um, keep it under control. 70% of the people that are on antidepressant drugs remain depressed. So uh, you figure it out. Uh, I mean, it, that's a real statistic that they just came out with. Uh, they bury it. Nobody wants to hear it. And so, but we've come to think that, well, we just need stronger antidepressants. And I say, yeah, it's called marijuana. But, you know, you don't want to go there, you know. So, so, but uh, people, and, and, and they know that people get better if they just, you know, if you really want to do no harm and do good for people, which is what doctors say, they know that people who are involved in what they would call religion or church do better than the, but, but no therapist is telling people to find a good church. Let me give you a prescription for Zoloft and you need to find a good church in Hanford because why? Because people who go to church are better emotionally, more stable. This is, this is the research. But we don't do that. And so, of course, it's the darkness and the blindness and all of that. But, um, you know, as a Christian, I'm up for all that. So let's get into it. You know, this much percentage of people are helped by going to church. 30% are helped by, maybe helped, by having Zoloft. Why don't you just go to church for a while, forget the chemicals right now, see how that works. You know, but that's not going to happen. So, Now, the Christian who acts these ways reveals he is a son of his Father in heaven. Like father, like son or daughter, this is the image of God that we wish to represent, in other words. He's, he's not saying when you act, that anybody who acts like this will become a son of God. He's saying because you are a son of God, because you've been born again, this is the nature that you bring forth. The idea is that people should be able to look at us as Christians and see the nature of God being revealed in us. And this is how God acts towards sinners. This is how we should act towards sinners. God has gotten bad press as being distant and angry. Uh, after all, we call disasters that are really, really bad acts of God. Uh, you know, God just got fed up 
over in Indonesia and he, sent, he sneezed and sent a tsunami and killed all those people. I mean, you know, that was an act of God. Uh, and, and that's sad because Jesus clarifies this kind of thinking by saying, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. I see this as an appeal to the creation of the world, obviously, that works on two levels. First, the times and seasons we endure are the same for every person. The elements and the weather don't favor one person over another. I mean, we just, you get up this morning, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're experiencing the same wind or lack of wind, the same temperature. Uh, you, know, you don't have your own climate, you know, because you're a Christian. Gee, how can you be standing there in, you know, shorts and, well, you know, I'm freezing, it's snowing, oh, not around me, you know. I mean, just so, so the, the climate is the climate, no matter where you are. Second, we factor in that creation is fallen. The fault with creation is not with God, it's with man. God had a really cool hydrological system of just even watering your garden for you. You know, you didn't, all you had to do was really enjoy gardening without weeds uh, or miracle grow or anything like that. I mean, it was just really cool. And then Adam and Eve sinned, we inherit that, it's imputed to us. We are the problem with creation. But God still doesn't destroy mankind. He allows him to go on living in his fallen creation out of respect for the fact that he wants to save them. And so this is all and more of what Jesus means when he says he makes the sun rise on the evil good and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And then he follows all this with a simple yet irrefutable argument. He says in verse 46 and 7, For if you love those who love you, what reward would you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you have more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Tax collectors, or your Bible might say publicans, were Jews, but they worked for the Roman government. So they were already hated. Uh, you know, the, the Jews obviously hated the Romans because they were their oppressors. They were uh, in subjection to Rome and were always trying to throw off that subjection. Uh, as if that weren't bad enough, you've gone over to the dark side and were working for the Romans. I mean, this is worse than crossing a picket line. I mean, you're, you're deep into uh, Roman culture. Uh, our understanding from what we can tell is that if you were a tax collector, you could exact as much as you could get away with. I don't know how exactly that works, but Rome, per perhaps you know, the average citizen never really knew what Rome was expecting from you know, Hanford. Uh, and so I could come to Chris and say, you know, Chris, now that you've got this new job flying, I have to bump your taxes up, you know. Oh, in fact, you're in a whole new category, you know. And, and uh, whatever they could get you to pay un under duress, uh, you would pay, and then you would give whatever Rome required, and you would keep the rest. And so it wasn't hard to see the tax collectors were getting rich, and uh, you know uh, that's why you get to Zacchaeus, and he says, "Man, I'm going to restore all, all the stuff that I've stolen from people that wasn't really their taxes." Maybe every now and then you'd get an honest tax collector, but I doubt it. Uh, you know, so it's just like every now and then you get an honest used car salesman, uh, and uh, you know when you f and. I think when you find him, he gets stuffed in the trunk by other used car salesmen and he goes out the door. But anyway, so these guys worked on commission and they hated their fellow citizens. And so uh, Jesus is saying, it's nothing noteworthy to return love and greeting to those who love and greet you. It wouldn't even need to be a part of God's law. God didn't need to say, keep on loving people you already love. 
and 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 who are like you and who like you. I mean, and so it should have been to any really thoughtful person encountering Leviticus 19, where it says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." It, it, you know, God doesn't have to tell you to do things that are redundant. Uh, he needs to tell you to do things that are difficult. And so the, the, the insight there, of course, as we said, was, okay, so whose neighbor am I? Who can I show love to in these ways to be like God? All based on the fact that this is how God treated me. And, and, and when you go from grace to law, this is what happens. If, if you really stick with grace and you understand that you don't merit God's favor, but He shows it anyway then you're going to treat other people that way. When you kind of start to think that you can keep God's law and please God by doing certain things, then you're going to treat people that way as well. And if they don't please you, if they don't do the right things, etc., etc. Verse 48, then he makes this incredible closing statement here, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Any thinking person knows he can never be as perfect as God but it was not to defeat you that Jesus said this, it was to encourage you. He's really insinuating that the, what the law could never do for you, perfect you, the Lord could do in you. The Jews already thought that they had to perfectly obey the externals of God's law. And some claimed that they were doing just that, but all the while they hated their enemies. The common people were discouraged knowing that the standards of their teachers were unattainable. The standards Jesus set were stricter and higher but since they affected the heart, in them was the promise of power from within, from God, so that we could come to this perfection. And so, on the surface you think, well, if I can't be like the Pharisees, if I have to be more righteous than them, I'm going to be even more discouraged and defeated. But in fact, it's just the opposite. I have to be more perfect than they are. And since, that's, and since no one is capable of doing that, God's going to have to do it in me and through me and now I'm excited about what might happen in my heart rather than counting leaves of my oregano to be righteous. You know, I can worry about whether my neighbor has oregano and start being, you know, instead of keeping back, you know, 90%, maybe I want to give him half. And, and it's, it's a whole different way of thinking uh, between grace and the law. Christians, we struggle with this. We, you know, how much is law? How much is grace? Hey, it's all of grace, and the law only reveals God's grace. And, and so, it's not that I'm trying to keep the law. I'm just trying to love the Lord. And when, as I love the Lord, I find myself keeping the law. And so, it's no wonder to me that the people love to hear the Lord speak because He was obliterating these impossible, ridiculous standards, setting higher standards, but giving them the hope that they could actually achieve them and, and would as they follow the Lord. All right, go out there and be sons of the Father today.